On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Pastor Morgan Bird, the confessional theology editor here at the London Lyceum, about the abstractive principles. So we cover topics like what is the abstract and what's the history behind it? How was it developed? What are the potential strengths of the confession, weaknesses to it? Is it better or worse than similar confessions like the Second London Confession or the New Hampshire Confession? Or is there anything controversial within it? And how would the abstract end up being used at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary? And why should churches consider using confessions like the abstract and much, much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this was going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to a couple of things. I mean, we're, I guess a big, broad idea. We want to promote serious thinking for a serious church. But the things that we try to really zero in on with the whole let's think well is charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Uh, there's a lot more virtues you could add to that list if you wanted to, but we've just kind of boiled it down to those things that we really want to focus on. So obviously critical thinking, we want to be thinkers across the board. Uh, me and Brandon are Baptists, so if you haven't listened before, um, surprise, if you didn't know. Well, if you do know, then yeah, we're Baptists. But we like everybody. Uh, but what we saw was Baptists in general seem to have a disposition that isn't geared towards thinking, and so we wanted to change that. So that's one of the things we do. But one of the other ones that we really focus on, we try to anyway, is a cheerful confessionalism. It seems that at least in the online world, a lot of people who are confessional, quote, quote, um, have bad attitudes and aren't cheerful. You know, they're kind of like curmudgeonly confessional or something like that. And we wanted to kind of help change that and push that in the other direction because we don't think you have to be a jerk to be confessional. We think you can actually be kind, cool and happy about it. So... In that vein, we're going to be talking about a confession of faith today. So I'm excited about that. We can be cheerful and excited about it, uh, be friendly about it. But obviously, it's going to be pretty easy, but maybe not. I mean, our guest today, Morgan Bird, has an Atlanta Braves hat on. And, you know, that's kind of one of my uh, nails on a chalkboard thing right now. So <laughs> I might have a hard time being nice. But anyway, Morgan Bird. So if you guys aren't familiar with him, we've done a couple episodes depending on when this releases, it might've been like a, a year ago or so that we did these on, uh, we did four on the mystery of Christ, Sam Renahan's book. And we just had a good time, uh, talking through that, thinking through that. And Morgan has, he's a part of our editorial team. He's the confessional theology guy. So it, it makes sense that he's writing a book on a confession of faith. So before I talk, and longer, Morgan also but, came on one time before that, uh, oh, that's to do, right. Abraham Booth. So that was his, right. his first appearance. So, so the, check that one his out claim to fame, you know, so I've been on <laughs> the said some, license. said some controversial things. You want to go back and some clickbait. Yeah, that's right. I like that episode. Um, I didn't know much too much about Abraham Booth. And so I was, got educated anyway, Morgan, give us 60 second bio of yourself for those who aren't familiar with you who might be a new listener and just don't know anything. And then tell me what is it about the abstractive principles in particular that got you interested in thinking about that? Yeah, cool. So my name is Morgan Bird, and I am currently a pastor in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina at a church called Palmetto Shores Church. I'm married to my wife, Allie, and we have one son, Benjamin. And I actually grew up here in Myrtle Beach, uh, moved away to go to seminary, and then came back. And I'm now one of the pastors um, at this church. My dad is actually the, the lead pastor of the church. And so we actually pastor alongside one another 
uh, at, at a church that I spent a good bit of my, my childhood in. So it's a really cool opportunity uh, to be back here. And then I guess as far as the, the abstract goes, um, as you mentioned, Jordan, I just wrote this book and it's about the abstract. And, and really, um, I guess I would say I wrote the book that I wish someone would have given me uh, when I was in, in church leadership growing as a Christian but maybe not yet seminary trained. Um, I felt like I uh, wanted to write something that would be a, a good a challenge for people who want to grow in, grow in their understanding of theology. Uh, but in particular, um, I wanted to approach it from a confessional standpoint. And I think the abstract one, uh, it's a really under, um, it's, not, it's not very well known. Like not a lot of people know about it. In fact, even people that go to the two seminaries that use it, both Southern Seminary and Southeastern Seminary uh, use it. And I think even a lot of the students sometimes aren't even familiar with it, don't even know it exists, um, don't know its history. And so um, the book is not really uh, so much a, a historical theology book. We don't really get into a whole lot of about where the abstract came from, but it's more just an exposition and application of the abstract itself. And um, I, I kind of fall, have fallen in love with it. I love um, the fact that it's clear, it's precise, uh, it's um, brief in some ways, and yet at the same time, it's really rich and covers a lot of ground. And so I think it's a great uh, document, at least especially as an introductory document for somebody who's never um, spent much time with confessions or maybe is coming out of a biblicist background. It's a great stepping stone because it's not this like 40 page document. Uh, the first copy I actually ever saw of it, uh, fit the whole thing fits on two pages. And so you can see it right there in front of you. Uh, and yet it still covers such a, a broad range of theological topics. And so that's what really attracted, to, attracted uh, me to it and made me want to do some more research and then eventually write, uh, write, write a book about it. So the book that Morgan is talking about is uh, Roots of Our Faith, The Abstract of Principles Explained and Applied. And this is H&E Publishing. So I think this book comes out in January, but you can go to the H&E website and pre-order that now for fifteen ninety nine. So that's a good deal. Um, so maybe b- before we before we get into the details of the book and kind of how you uh, go about explaining, you know, each article and stuff in the book. Give us a little bit of the historical background uh, on the abstract. Why was it written? Who wrote it? Um, what was the original purpose behind it? Awesome. Yeah, so um, the history of the abstract is basically tied up with the story of Southern Baptist theological education. Um, the abstract of principles was the first founding confessional document of the Southern Seminary, which was the first Southern Baptist seminary. Um, it, was a, it was an attempt to write a, a document that that um, wa- would would be found to have consensus with most people who were Southern Baptists at the time, and um, not only <clears throat> was it a not only does it represent the consensus theologically, uh, but as I'll explain in a minute, it also in a way represented a consensus with philosophy of ministry um, that just the creation of it. What is a good indication that the early Southern Baptists were, in fact, confessional. Uh, James, the t- two important names when it comes to the abstract are James Pettigrew Boyce, not to be confused with James Montgomery Boyce, as I've uh, done before, James Pettigrew Boyce, 
and then Basil Manley Jr. Uh, they were the two guys that, that we might um, attribute to this document. Um, Basil Manley Sr., so that's Manley Jr.'s father, he was the pastor at First Baptist Church Charleston. And these two other men, obviously his son and then James Pettigrew Boyce, were members of his congregation. Well, when it came time, both of these young men were going to go and be trained theologically. Um, they were encouraged by Basil Manley Sr. to go and attend Princeton, which is kind of odd. You think, here's this pastor who's in the South, who's a Baptist, and he's encouraging his son and he's encouraging another young man to go to a Northern Presbyterian uh, seminary to get their theological education. And the reason why is because um, Basil Manley Sr. was committed to confessionalism, and he wanted his son and he wanted James Pettigrew Boyce to go and to be trained in a place where um, doctrine and theology were encouraged. And um, the, the, really the model, both for the seminary and for something like the abstract, came out of uh, James Pettigrew Boyce and Basil Manley Jr.'s experience at uh, Princeton. And so um, the, the, the influences for the abstract, uh, the main influence is the Second London Confession. Uh, the, the word abstract is kind of weird. We use that word in different ways now, I think, than they did in the 1800s. Uh, what they mean by abstract is basically a summary. Uh, so it's like, it's like the summary of theology or the summary of doctrine. And if you want to think about it like this, it's almost like the abstract of principles is the summary of the Second London Confession, which itself is a summary of Christian doctrine. And so um, you can almost think of the abstract as like a, a, a smaller, more succinct, more brief uh, version of the Second London Confession. And so um, that, that is what was um, perceived as the consensus at, at, the, at, at this time in the 1850s. And um, they adopted this document, and it was said uh, from, from the very first day of Southern Seminary that all the professors who would, who would teach there uh, would sign off on this document, that would, they would teach uh, in accordance and not contrary to the abstract of principles. Um, but it is interesting. There has been some drama over the years with the abstract of principles. Um, apparently, in the 1980s, when Al Mohler showed up at Southern as a student, uh, he said that there were um, professors who were openly uh, disagreeing with the abstract of principles. And apparently he even had one professor who handed out uh, revisions to his students. So this is a guy who had come on as a seminary professor at Southern who had signed his name beside the abstract, just like every other professor uh, that's ever taught there had. And yet, He's going around handing out revisions um, to his students uh, on campus. This is in the early 1980s. And so it's really cool because the abstract of principles both plays a role at the insemination of the Southern Baptist Convention at Southern Baptist Life. But then it also comes to play this vital role in the resurgence in Southern Baptist Life. Um, a few years later, when Al Mohler is um, gets the job as the president of Southern Seminary in his first address to the whole student body, to all the faculty and professors. He actually preached on the need to return to confessionalism. And what he did was in that, in that uh, address, he went point by point through the abstract of principles 
and basically said, hey, we agree with this. Uh, this is what we're going to uphold as an institution. And going forward, I know there's been a lot of professors who have not taught in accordance with this, but going forward, uh, this is going to be the standard for both the Southern Seminary and um, Southern Baptist life. And so uh, it's really cool. The abstract, again, plays that role at the beginning of Southern Baptist life, and then it comes back and it plays a very vital role in the resurgence as well. And and like I said, today, uh, the abstract of principles is still being used at Southern and it's still being used at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary as a uh, binding confessional document. So you mentioned Southern and Southeastern, and, and I know that your church uh, has either already adopted or is in the process of adopting uh, the abstract as your church's confession. Another example, I think, would be Redeemer Fellowship, um, the ch- the church that uh, Joe Thorne is pastor of. I believe they use the abstract. Do you know if um, early on in the earliest decades after it was drafted, if it was used as a confession for churches or was it just primarily for those uh, seminaries? That's That's a good question. I actually don't know the answer to that exact question. I do know that when uh, James Pettigrew Boyce in particular, he made an address a few years earlier, I think it was in 1854, he made an address to the board members at Furman University who were integral in establishing Southern. Um, and he did say, he, he said that every church has to come to terms with its own doctrine and has to, I mean, he, 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 was, he was okay with the idea of church autonomy uh, and that sort of thing. Um, but he saw this as it's interesting the way he talks about it. He basically works through these tiers and he says, hey, your church, your average church member uh, may not be required to sign off on all these things. Like they should believe in Jesus, get baptized and become a member of your church. And then he says, you know, your, your pastor, your elder, um, they should have a higher standard for what they believe, what they hold to. Uh, but then he goes and, and basically says, like, if we're if we're talking about the people that are going to be training and teaching our pastors and influencing um, our churches, they've got to have the highest standard of doctrine. And so um, in a way, I I think that um, the document wasn't necessarily designed for churches, um, but this is what I found interesting, both in James uh, Pettigrew Boyce's um, initial address And then also in Al Mohler's address in the 1980s, both of them basically say, hey, there is a crisis in Baptist life. There is this crisis um, that we uh, don't have a standard of theology. And I don't I don't just mean that from the standpoint of confession, but there's just there's not a willingness to be clear and to be decisive and to uphold a standard of doctrine. And if 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 they were saying that in the 1850s and they they were saying that in the 1980s, I, I can't imagine that we would say that's any different today. Um, and so, um, yeah, to answer your question, I'm not sure if there were any churches that were using this, um, but I know it was intentionally designed to influence the life of the church, to influence pastors and churches who would be um, leading congregations towards towards the truth. Yeah. So I I've got a question. I think that I want to get to in a second about the abstract versus say second London or, or other, other confessions. But one thing I want to note is, you know, you're talking about how the history of this document and how it's been used at Southern and how, you know, there, I don't know how long that period was at Southern that there was intentional revisions being made or ignorance of it. And I think probably there, there's a segment of our listeners who are either a uncomfortable with what's said in the abstract of principles or just don't like it. And 
I think a lot of it has to do with some of like the, just the way the conservative resurgent went, resurgence went about. But my, I mean, my beef with, with the people who are in the, I guess on the other side of the conservative resurgence, and I don't know if you guys agree, is when it comes to this, the abstract of principles, I don't think everybody has to agree with this. But I think if you go to a church or an institution that signs on to something like this, um, you you don't, I mean, you have to affirm it or go somewhere else. Like, I, like that's not, not being charitable to say, look, this is what we believe. And if you don't like it, then, I mean, tough cookies. I, I just... Is that how we think about confessionalism? Because I think there is a struggle for some people to say, how can you be kind and gracious in this? Because they see examples over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, whatever, where it seems that confessional people are, are heavy-handed. But I don't think it's heavy-handed, personally, to just say, this is a summary of what we think. And if you want to be uh, a, an elder or a member or a professor or whatever, then you have to agree with that. I mean, am I thinking wrong here? I know, Jordan, I, I found even at the local church level, um, w- one of the most controversial things in the abstract for people at our church, it comes up in the article on baptism. And it says at the end of the article on baptism, it says that baptism is a prerequisite for participation in the Lord's Supper. Now, um, interestingly enough, after that sort of ruffled some feathers, I was just curious, and I went and looked, and the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says the exact same thing. So it's not like the abstract is any more um, controversial than that. And the charge that some of the people brought up in our church is they said that that was legalism. And I think it just brings up this really interesting conversation about like what what exactly is legalism? And, and just because you hold to a standard and just because you um, hold to truth and even how that relates to practice and in the practice of the church um, doesn't necessarily mean that that's legalism. Um, I've often thought, and I, I've talked about this a little bit in the book, every chapter in the book, I have a section on misconceptions. And that was the one of the misconceptions that I tried to tackle in the baptism section. Um, and and what I what I basically said was like, hey, if this is legalism, then like half the things that Jesus said is legalism. Like he he was not afraid to say like there are things that you have to do or there were things that you must do, and that doesn't mean we're securing our justification through it. Doesn't mean we're securing our right standing with God through it. Um, now on the other side, I do think that. Um, you know, there, there is something to be said about being charitable and um, holding, holding a standard with love and doing that with, with compassion. And so I, I think you can fall off on both sides. But um, no, I don't, think, I don't think it's legalism. And I love this was another thing I had to work through. There's an article on liberty of conscience. And so you have to, you have to ask, you know, does confessionalism negate liberty of conscience? And obviously, for some people, it hasn't because in, in a very document that is a confessional document, there's an article on liberty of conscience. So clearly, they did not see that as some sort of a, a contradiction. And, and so I, I think those are the two areas that I've seen where that, that comes to play. It just seems to me like to go back to the, you know, the seminary part of it and, and signing on to the document. Like if you're going to sign on to say you believe a document, like it's just less than honest to yeah. either ignore it or to edit it in such a way where, you know, the, the theology 
that that you're teaching is unrecognizable to the person who actually wrote the confession that you that you've signed on to. I mean, and and as far as you know, exceptions. I mean, I think it's it's fairly common for uh, you know pastors or even maybe a seminary professor to have a, a minor you know disagreement with a place in a, in a confession, but that should be stated up front, like when you're yeah. you're coming on that way. You know, it's it's known that I do have this disagreement in this area, but I'm okay everywhere else. And then, you know, let the administration decide wherever they want. But it just seems less than honest to either ignore it and, and sign it and just pretend like you actually believe it or to edit it in such a way that it just totally loses all its original meaning. But I don't know. Well, I, I, I just think it's a matter of honesty. I know, too, if you go back and look and read the address that um, Boyce made, Part of what he's part of what he's saying is like, hey, he says two things. Just one, um, it, this is to honor the people that are giving the funds to start the school. I mean, think about all the people that gave money under the under the idea that this is what they would be teaching. And so he's saying like, th- this is we we have to uphold this standard to honor these people's contribution. But then on the other side of it. He says in there, he's like, hey, if this is wrong, then change it. If this is wrong, then present it to the board and make make an amendment, make a make a change. And um, but but that hasn't happened, um, you know, almost 150 years later. Or so um, the abstract is still the same document that it that it was in 1858. Um, and so, yeah, he, he was already thinking through those those lines at the beginning. And that's why they laid down the doctrines that they did is because they wanted the school to be in line with a certain philosophy and certain theology. Okay. That's, that's super helpful. Cause I think, I mean, a lot of people do have questions about that and just, it puts a little bit of a bad taste sometimes depending on who's, who's telling the story, you know? Um, but as far as the abstract of principles goes, the doctrinal content of it, you mentioned it's almost a summary or an abstract of the second London confession of faith. Does it differ from the Second London in any significant or particular way? Um, is it? Do you think, in your opinion, is it a better summary, a worse summary, or is it on par with it? And then, I guess the other one what I'd, I'd want to bring is the New Hampshire Confession. How does that compare, contrast? Is because I think New Hampshire and probably Abstract are similar lengths. I guess New Hampshire is a little bit longer, but as far as like, hey, I don't want to do a massive hundred page. It's not hundred pages, but you get it. Second London is big. Like if I want one for my church and I want something small, what's the the benefit of saying abstract versus New Hampshire? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, I think materially, there's not a whole lot that's different uh, in its teaching. There'll be there's a few little minor things here and there. Um, I know, for example, the abstract chooses not to use the word Sabbath um, in its language. Um, instead, it just it it just talks about the Lord's day. And um, I know that's one little thing that that I think the reason they did that was an attempt to 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 create consensus. I think there were churches, there were pastors and churches that weren't all in consensus with exactly how to interpret uh, the, the scriptures on the Sabbath. And so they just went with the Lord's Day instead. Um, so that's one thing um, that's a little bit different materially. But, um, you know, I think it comes down more to pra- practice and, pr- and practically. I, I don't know where you guys are at uh, in your churches. I know that most of the churches that I've been around and spent time in, um, they might've had some sort of um, s- statement of faith or something. But I, what I find is that they're either so meager 
uh, it's like, hey, here's our five bullet points that of things we affirm that's like, you know, what's kind of the point of even having that at all? Um, or they can be so long and or even just cumbersome that it makes it difficult to actually utilize it in the life of the church. And um, that's what I love about the abstract. Um, it's uh, it's brief enough that it's not overwhelming to people. Uh, as I've we've taught it now, we've taught through it twice uh, on Sunday evenings at our church. And it's um, it's brief enough that people don't feel overwhelmed. It doesn't take years and years to work through. Um, and yet it's rich at the same time. I mean, it, it takes some really quick, deep dives um, down into theology. I'll, I'll say I'll be really honest. The, the biggest drawback for me of the abstract is that sometimes it attempts to pack so much information into the, the, the smallest sentence possible that it reads a little clunky at times. It reads like a little bit like, are you allowed to put that many commas in one sentence? Like, I'm not quite sure that you can do that. Um, but from, from a standpoint of, I, I think we, I think we all, like any of us who are confessional have to ask, like, why are we doing this? You know, what's the point of this, this confession? And I think we would all say, uh, that it does present a standard. Uh, we would all say that this is a, a great, this is great when there's error so that you can, uh, recover it. But on the complete other side of it, I think a side that we totally miss sometimes is just, having something that's that usably teaches the summary of our faith and how many Christians don't even have a basic framework for the summary of our faith. Um, how many Christians can't really tell the story and don't see how some of the basic pieces fit together. And so I know that the reason I like the abstract is because it feels more usable, especially just for a church like mine that's coming out of a background that's not really confessional. And so this was a great first step for us um, where it, it gives us something that people could could actually go and spend time with and interact with. And and it would be beneficial to their their uh, their life and their understanding of the faith. Let's talk a little bit about your book. So I know you uh, early on, you sent me some of the material that was going to go in the book because we were talking about it. And I don't know what all was changed before the, the final product. So maybe you can, well, first of all, how, how long is the book, uh, your book? How many uh, I pages? think the book is like 380 to 400, somewhere in that range. Um, wow. Pages. Yep. That's, a, that's impressive, so. dude. I'm proud of you, man. Yeah, I thought you were joking <laughs> for a second, but you're real. So that's legit. I'm not, I'm not joking. Um, you know, part of, part of where the length came from is that every chapter is set up the same way. And so I did that on purpose. I wanted it to feel like two things. I wanted it to feel like um, there wasn't a whole lot of extra fluff. So I wanted you to sort of know what's coming next on, on the one hand. Um, but then, um, but yeah, so anyway, uh, I set, I set up all the chapters the same. And, and just because of that, I tried to flesh out a couple different categories. Every chapter starts with just sort of a basic overview Sometimes I'll use a, a historical moment. Um, I tried to use uh, some of the older creeds and confessions and stuff like that to sort of to draw people into the historic Orthodox faith. And then um, I go into some scriptures and talk about what are some scriptures that support uh, the article. And then there's a there's an actual explanation of the abstract itself. So I broke it down phrase by phrase and just give a, a brief explanation of the article. And then, like I said earlier, I deal with misconceptions. And this is where, again, this is where I really wished that someone had given me a book like this. Um, on the one hand, 
I would have loved just a little bit of church history, you know, just a little bit of how does my 20th, 21st century Baptist faith connect back to the Mm. historic rooted church. Um, And then on the other side, how do I process some of these misconceptions that so many of us have? And then the final uh, section is application. So I didn't want to leave people hanging. I wanted people to see how these, these individual doctrines have ramifications for both our churches and our lives. And so every chapter uh, kind of, kind of plays out the same way. And, 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 you know, it, it, the, the other thing I like about the way it's set up is let's say you're somebody who, who doesn't like to read books cover to cover, but you just have like a question on like the final resurrection, or you have a question on liberty of conscience. Like you could pick it up, just read that one chapter, put it down. And two years later, you could come back up and pick it up when you had another question. And so it's not really designed where you have to feel like you have to read it cover to cover. Mm, That's good. Yeah. And I I was talking to a brother the other night and, you know, I think churches really are kind of starving for this kind of thing. Um, You know, a a level of, of, of theological instruction where they're not going to drown, but it's, but it's not just, you know, shallow and not even really worth sinking your teeth into. So I think this this kind of thing is going to be good uh, for local churches. So maybe we can pick one or two of the chapters like that were your favorite to write on, or maybe that there's a particular section in one of these that you remember writing about the most, whether it be misconceptions or some historical event that you used. Um, so just to give the, the listeners a, a taste of what they can expect if they buy the book. Cool. I think surprisingly enough, one of my favorite chapters to work on was the chapter on liberty of conscience. And part of the reason why is, in one sense, it wasn't really something that I had spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, But as I started to process through it and really dig my teeth into it a little bit, um, I realized that a lot of the current controversies and a lot of the ways we treat one another and talk to one another come from this misunderstanding of uh, what it means to live before the face of God, uh, to be accountable to God, um, at times to submit ourselves to something like a local church where we're, where we're now um, not constrained and we're not um, slaves, so to speak, in our conscience, but we are willing to submit um, questions about when to obey the government versus when not to obey the government. Um, and then the, the part in the, the, that chapter that I really loved working through was really thinking through these two concepts. On the one side, what is a bound conscience? And, and then on the other side, what is a seared conscience? And so a bound conscience, the way I think of it is just, uh, or a more like street level way to think of it is uh, when you're feeling bad about stuff that you shouldn't. Uh, when for some reason, whether it's something you've been taught or some way that you're misinterpreting the Bible, or maybe even a view that you have of, of um, different laws that are throughout, throughout the scriptures, um, you're feeling guilty, even though you shouldn't. And I think we see this a lot of times. I think as preachers, especially, sometimes we want people to do stuff so bad. Uh, we want them to say yes to things like promotions or serving or small groups or whatever it is. And we end up um, saying things that the Bible doesn't. We end up making it sound like you have to do something that the Bible actually says you, you don't have to do. Uh, but then on the other side, a seared conscience. Uh, the other way to think of it is like when you don't feel bad about the things that you should feel bad about. 
Um, in other words, maybe somewhere along the lines, someone made you feel like, like maybe you were guilty and you felt, you felt guilty because you'd sinned, but then somebody came along and were like, ah, that's not a big deal. Like you shouldn't worry about that. Like you're under grace. That's not, that's not a big deal. And maybe seared your conscience. And so, um, I really loved working through that, that chapter in particular, um, maybe just cause it was some new material for me, but also because I think it helped me navigate some of the current situation that we find ourselves in, um, in in the United States anyways. And then uh, another thing that I really enjoyed um, working through the book, uh, it's not really one particular article, um, so, but it's kind of three things and they're connected. So there's an article on justification. Then in the article on perseverance of the saints, it talks about temporal judgments. And then there's a article, the very last article is on the final judgment. And um, something I've seen pastorally uh, that's, I think there's been this great, I think it's been a really good surge of what we might call gospel centeredness. And I think um, maybe on a really, again, street level, it's like this idea that um, the Bible is about Jesus, that we are accepted by God, that we don't have to earn our salvation, that we're not, this isn't a works-based faith, works-based Christianity and I think that's been a good surge. I think it's been a good recovery sort of back to those, those truths. But what I've seen is that what's come with that is a real misunderstanding of both God's discipline and how he deals with us uh, when we do sin and when we are grieving the spirit. And then also a real misunderstanding in how that relates to the final judgment. And so there's, I think, a, a real help for us that in this, in this short little document, we get a really clear statement on justification that in Christ, we are acquitted of all our sin. Acquitted is like better than pardoned. It's not just that you're, it, you're not being held accountable for the bad things you've done. It's, that it's as if you've not done anything wrong. You're declared righteous. So it's this really clear statement on justification. But then when you get to perseverance, it also talks about how there are times when we slip back in the faith and we sin and we grieve the Holy Spirit, and God does bring temporal judgments into our into our lives. It doesn't mean He's punishing us. It doesn't mean He's um, His wrath is being poured out towards us because we're justified. But it does mean that in that moment, um, He wants us to change. He wants us to repent, um, and He is grieved uh, by by what we're doing. And then the the final that final um, article on. Uh, the final judgment. Um, again, making sense of that. If if I'm justified, then what is this talk about? Maybe when it says in James that those who teach will be judged according to a stricter judgment. Like, what does that even mean? If um, if God is already pleased with me because I'm I'm hidden in Jesus, and if I can't basically do anything wrong because I'm under grace, um, then what is the, especially the New Testament talking about? when it talks about um, us standing before the Lord and giving an account for our words, for our in, the intentions of our heart. Uh, when Paul talks about how what we build will be burned up, and if we don't build uh, with gold and silver, but we, we build with wood, hay, and straw, that it will be consumed. Um, I, I think that we've, in the surge of that gospel-centered movement, I think there's a real misunderstanding of what that means for our everyday walk with God, and then also that final judgment. And so, uh, anyway, liberty of conscience, and then this 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 wrestling with justification on the one hand, but then my actual real walk with God and how he, how I interact with Him on the other hand. Those were two really big things for me as I worked through the material. So to put Brandon on the hot seat, hot seat. How how do you take 
the Lord's Day. What does that mean? What does that entail? Um, when it says resting from worldly employments and amusements, does that mean I'm not allowed to watch football on Sundays? Are you asking me? No, no, I'm asking Morgan. Well, I was about to he say, I didn't us. write the book. Morgan, you go ahead. Yeah. Jordan, you did say Brandon's name. And I so did I was say like, it. Man, oh, I this is going to be cause, good. Because <laughs> I know he takes exception to, to some of this, at least. So I'm just curious how you would understand it, Morgan. So here, here's a um, – this is sort of just an honest pastoral thing from, from my standpoint, from our church. When we adopted the abstract, we actually lightly amended it. Um, there were a few places where we updated the language. Like some of it was just – uh, sort of like the old New American Standard, like brethren, like we were just sort of getting out of that that old language. But then there were a couple articles that we we tweaked a few things here and there, and um, we actually left that that last little phrase that you mentioned. We just left it off, um, and the and the main reason why, and um, it, I, Brandon and I have talked about this before. There's actually some some historical theology that you have to do to really understand what they meant by that. And uh, I think the way it reads right off the page can be confusing. Um, I'm not going to really go into all that uh, about what it means, but we just felt like where we are today, what what needed to be emphasized is that the Lord's Day is really important. And in, in our church, like a lot of people really don't take gathering with God's people to celebrate the resurrection, to sit under God's word seriously. And we see like a lot of even our members who um, don't attend church like half of the year. And, um, and so I was really excited um, both to affirm the Lord's Day and just slowly but surely pastor and disciple our people towards seeing why this matters and why this is important for the life of our church. So that's a little bit of a cop out, I think, for the answer or the question that you asked. Um, but I love that it's. I love that it was in there. I love that I got the chance to flesh that out. And um, what I tried to do, especially through um, through uh, some of those chapters on the church, was I tried to do a little bit of Baptist covenant theology, and I tried to connect some of the dots um, between maybe the unique way that Baptists are carving out some of these discussions about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about the relationship between Israel and the church. And then about the relationship between the Lord's Day and the Sabbath. And I think I put a footnote somewhere in there about the controversy on the Sabbath and how it's like not necessarily a positive law because um, it was, you know, we, we see evidences of it in creation and that sort of thing. So I try, I try to give a little taste of that in there, but I, I really tried to be cautious about going down, going down into some rabbit trails um, like that throughout the book. Um, and so anyway, not exactly the the answer you might have been looking for. Uh, Jordan's just I, trying to stir up trouble. That, that's all. <laughs> I, I am. I, I'm trying to stir up trouble. Look, I need I need that Morgan. I need to ask you my uh, my new Baptist nerd question that I ask all our our Baptist guests. So, what are your three go to Baptist like resources? So, like your your top three Baptist books, whether it's Baptist history. Baptist theology, ecclesiology, like what are what are the the three things you would recommend every Baptist has to read this? Man, Off the top of your head. I, I wish we could You're not supposed to prepare for this. Yeah. I wish we could press pause and then let me like come back on and, and uh respond to this. No. Um I, honestly, um the the main one that's that's coming to my mind right off the top of my head is the mystery of Christ that we covered uh, a few about a year ago uh, Samuel Renahan's book 
um, on covenant theology. I, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that was just a really groundbreaking book for me to work through. I had had personally so many questions about um, how do I think through these things with the different covenants and how they relate and old covenant, new covenant, and that sort of thing. And, and that was a that was a super helpful book for me. Um, this might be like um, this might this might be like a little bit of a cop out, but I've really utilized um, Joe Thorne's books. Um, his, his three books, heart of the church, life of the church. And, um, do you know the name of the other one? Um, anyway, we've used those here at our church and I've honestly, I've loved it. It's been great, uh, to utilize here. And, um, I think the heart of the church is maybe intended to do something similar to what my book is doing. I would say my book's a little bit more robust, uh, than what his book on the heart of the church is, but he's also just covering some core doctrines from a Baptistic perspective. Um, and really and so, he's probably not as smart. So, <laughs> Joe will never listen to our uh, podcast, so I could say that I can uh, make because he would totally do that. <laughs> oh man, no, I don't know about that. Um, man, I'm trying to think. You've you've got me a little caught off guard uh, with your question. I, I should know that. I should have these out the tip the, of my finger. The third book is the character of the church. By the way, I just looked it up. Okay, okay, cool, yeah. cool. So, yeah, those have been those have been helpful for us. So, anyway, those are just a couple. Yep. Yeah, thanks, that's man. good. I guess maybe my last question before we let you go is a church, you know, they've got several options today as far as like confessions they could use. Why would you say use the abstract versus something like the Baptist faith and message? I mean, Baptist faith and message seems ready to go. You don't have to update brethren to brothers and sisters. So you don't have to deal with any of those sort of things. It's just ready, made, cut, paste, boom, done. Uh, or say, you know, I, I know Capitol Hill Baptist Church, they use New Hampshire. I know quite a few others use New Hampshire. If you had to make a case for saying, I think this is why I would want to use abstract versus the other ones, what is that case? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, let, let me maybe maybe take them, take them in order. I know um, I kind of, in, in the introduction to the book, I take a, a soft shot at the Baptist faith, the message, because I don't know when the last time you guys went and, and read it was, but it's just really clunky. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't really have a lot of symmetry. doesn't have a lot of beauty. Um, there's just aspects of it that are, that feel out of place and that feel overly wordy. And um, it's not to say that I necessarily disagree uh, with it, but um, from a, from a clarity standpoint, um, it's just not my favorite not my favorite statement, if I'm honest. Um, so um, I think the second London is something that's really helpful. I have copies of it. I pass it out to people in my church. I think it's great uh, for people to read through, but it is a little intimidating uh, when I hand them a, basically a book and say like, you know, here's here's this confession. I think it's um, a little intimidating. And then, yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't really gone line by line through the New Hampshire but my my biggest encouragement at, for why we went with the abstract is that on the one hand, uh, we felt like it was really clear about presenting the best of both Reformation, uh, rooted Reformation theology. I think it was some of the best of, of Baptistic uh, theology, and it felt user-friendly. It felt like I could put this in front of people. It, the whole thing fits on a front and back piece of paper. And people could actually engage with this and um, not be overwhelmed by it. And, and so, um, yeah, I loved, I loved that it covered the material it did with the depth that it did, but it was brief and it was, um, it felt, 
uh, it felt like you could actually use it in the life of your church. And so um, that's that's why we went with it. Um, and I'll say too, I'll, I'll just be honest, like it, it has it has a couple hard edges. I mentioned the thing about the uh, prerequisite to the Lord's Supper, baptism being the prerequisite to the Lord's Supper. Um, there's a chat, there's an article on election, you know, which is just right out there. It's just, it's, it's a hard edge. It's right there. Um, and, and, th- and there was a couple things like that in it that, that honestly I liked that I thought could be healthy uh, for our church. Um, I know that um, there's always going to be this spectrum of where you want to land on those hard edges. Um, how, how, how offensive, so to speak, do you want to be with how strict and how sharp you are uh, with, with your statement and your confession? Um, but I appreciated uh, its brevity, its clarity. I appreciated that, that it had some of those sharp edges, but it wasn't overwhelming. And so that's why we went with the abstract. And um, that's why I decided to dive in and, and do some deeper, deeper study into it. Yep, makes sense. Cool, man. Well, this has been, I think, a nice little introduction to the abstract. For those who aren't familiar with it, you should go check it out. I mean, you could read that thing in 10 minutes, no problem, less than 10 minutes probably, and get a good sense for it. I've I've always liked it. Uh, I, I'm a big fan. Brandon, I think, do you like, if you had a choice, would you pick abstract or New Hampshire? Because I know you just taught through New Hampshire. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm definitely more familiar with the New Hampshire just because I just, I just taught through that. Um, but I mean, I like the abstract too. So I, yeah, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I necessarily prefer the New Hampshire just sitting them side by side. But I, I am more comfortable with yeah. it just because I. Just I mean, I think it. abstract is. I mean, if if your church has concerns for like, I don't know, just theological acumen or ability to like withstand bigger, heftier confessions, uh, this I think is the ideal path to take. Uh, honestly, just because it is so clear and straightforward and simple that. You know, my grandma, I could have her read it and she could understand what's going on in it just because it's not like she's reading a book. It's pretty quick. Thank you for tuning in to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.